What is the most significant misconception you think the American public holds about the court or its role in democracy? Well, that could be a long list. Hey, everyone. This is Leon from Fiasco and Prologue Projects. On this week's premium episode of 5 to 4, Peter talks to Slate's Mark Joseph Stern about an unusual run of speeches by Supreme Court justices. Over the past month, three conservative justices have spoken out in defense of the court's legitimacy, arguing that the media exaggerates the extent of the court's partisanship and secrecy. The justices did so while speaking in front of private audiences at a private religious university, or while being introduced to the audience by a Republican politician. Afterwards, they refused to allow their remarks to be released to the public. We got a hold of them anyway. This is 5 to 4 a podcast about how much the Supreme Court sucks. Welcome to 5 to 4, where we dissect and analyze the Supreme Court cases that have left American law dilapidated and crumbling like America's highways. I am Peter, and I am joined by Mark Joseph Stern, who covers courts and the law for Slate. Mark, welcome to the show. Hi, Peter. My usual co-hosts, Michael and Rhiannon, are off on different jaunts around the nation. Michael is uh, moving across the country, which you can't blame him for. Rhiannon is partying in Mexico City, last I checked, which I can blame her for, and I do blame her for. Are you sure they don't just hate me and wanted to avoid recording this episode with me? No, (laughs) but these are my best guesses, Mark. (laughs) So, you know, it's a great time to have you on. This podcast was launched on the premise that the Supreme Court is an ideological and political institution. And since we launched it, a lot has happened to sort of reinforce our thesis. Ruth Bader Ginsburg died and Amy Coney Barrett was rammed through as her replacement right before an election. In stark contrast to the Merrick Garland debacle from a few years ago, the court handed down some awful voting rights decisions, some awful First Amendment decisions, and most recently took the first step toward overturning Roe v. Wade. And as a result, a lot more people have started to see things our way, so to speak, and public approval of the court has plummeted. And the justices seem to have noticed, specifically Clarence Thomas, Amy Coney Barrett, and Sam Alito gave speeches to different audiences, throw in a promotional book tour speech by Stephen Breyer, and nearly half the court spoke out about the perception that the court is a partisan body in the month of September in a move that is definitely normal and not super defensive. It was a little surreal to watch these unfold one after the next as, you know, a a usually quiet institution was suddenly engaged in a coordinated media blitz of sorts. The simplest and most obvious inference you can make from all this is that they are concerned. They see public opinion shifting against them and they they want to play a little active defense The open question, though, and the one we want to at least attempt to answer is whether this is a signal that they are going to be susceptible to public pressure or whether they are not flinching, but rather just preemptively managing the inevitable public outrage to come. So Mark and I combed through all of these speeches looking for clues and also just sort of preparing ourselves to make fun of their dumbasses for uh, all the stupid shit they said. Nice. So. Mark, I'm going to give you first honors here, and you can talk about the Clarence Thomas speech. 
Okay, this I think is in some ways the mildest of the speeches mm-hmm. that that was delivered because a, a large chunk of it was devoted to the kind of pablum that we're used to hearing from the justices at public events that seems almost designed not to make news, right? So he was speaking at Notre Dame, as they all apparently prefer to do these days, and gave an address that was largely about his upbringing, about, you know, being a poor Black child in the South about his path to the law and his work on the Supreme Court. And it wasn't really until later in the speech and during the Q&A segment that he got a little bit spicy and off the cuff. And he said a couple of things of note that did end up making waves. He criticized the Supreme Court for venturing in the areas we should not have ventured into. He said that the Supreme Court and the federal judiciary have gone from being the least dangerous branch to the most dangerous. Mm -hmm. He claimed that all of the, quote, craziness around his confirmation was absolutely about abortion. And when asked a kind of broad question about court expansion and court reform, He cautioned against destroying our institutions because they don't give us what we want when we want it. And finally, he delivered what is kind of like a half-hearted defense of the Supreme Court itself, where he acknowledged that in his view it was flawed, but said, I will defend it because knowing all the disagreements. It works. It may work sort of like a car with three wheels, but it still works. (laughs) And then, just for good measure, he took a swipe at the media for depicting the court as a policymaking body. He said, I think the media makes it sound as though you are just always going right to your personal preference. So if they think you're anti-abortion or something personally, they think that that's the way you always will come out. Which is, of course, actually true for Clarence Thomas. But setting that aside, he did not do exactly, I think, the kind of overt defense of the institution as a pristine, neutral, Mount Olympus-type body that Amy Coney Barrett depicted it as. Um, He admitted its flaws, which I guess we can say is a good thing. He didn't say the court is absolutely perfect, but he still did this kind of hedging that we're seeing from multiple justices where he says, you know, despite some imperfections. Like, it's a really good thing. This gig I have is really sweet, and I definitely don't want anybody ruining it anytime soon. Yeah, and and he sort of, he did a thing that we saw out of Alito, which is sort of to cast any criticism as just like, haters are mad, you know? We're coming down on the conservative side because it's correct, and the libs are just a little bit pissed about that because they're a bunch of libs. They disagree with us. And that's their problem, right? That That's sort of like the implication of a lot of what he said. Right, for sure. That anytime the libs disagree with us uh, and disagree with the court, it's because they want us to make policy and liberal policy at that. And we're just not doing it because we're humble judges in our, our modest black robes. And so the libs can hate all they want, but I'm doing a real judge's job. And Republicans understand that and mm-hmm. they're not complaining because they get the real role of the court. <laughs> right, right. It's a bit off topic, but probably worth noting that, like you mentioned, his defenses of like the court and discussion of politicization of the court was sort of an aside. And the bulk of the speech was almost entirely about how after the assassination of Martin Luther King, he became consumed by like anger and racial grievance and how he sees that in younger black people now 
and how it's important to like move past those feelings and just like become a conservative, I guess. Like that's his, (laughs) that's sort of his, his thesis. Well, it's his master narrative of his life and of the black experience in the United States. And what I said before, he was talking about his path to the law. That is how he frames his path to the law. If you've seen that really bizarre PBS documentary that's literally just him and Ginny Thomas like spewing propaganda about how great Mm -hmm. Clarence Thomas is. You will hear him give this spiel about how he was an angry young black man, that he was very radical, that he like had these very far left beliefs in black power. And then he came to understand that that anger was a manifestation of like a deeper injustice that came not from centuries of racism and discrimination and systemic inequality, but from the sense of self-pity that has consumed much of the Black American community. And that he was able to rise above that with the help of his sort of libertarian and conservative mentors who taught him that what he really needed to do was just sort of reject the entire narrative of the Black civil rights struggle and reframe it as more of like a completely like individual atomistic, mm-hmm. you know, you young black man need to stand up and save your own life because if you only stay in this pit of rage with the rest of black Americans, you'll just collapse into the kind of poverty and despair that your sister lives in. And I mean, to this day, Clarence Thomas talks about how much he like hates his sister because right. his sister fell into this, I guess, pit of despair that he was able to lift himself out of by his own bootstraps. I did think it was interesting interesting that he devoted the bulk of his speech to that and then turned and talked about how also don't pack the courts, please, because I'm finally (laughs) the intellectual leader and I'm having the time of my life and I don't want you to destroy it. I love that he paints his path as like an admirable and correct one because he's one of the most visibly miserable people I've ever witnessed in public life. (laughs) He's just an incredibly bitter person still talking about Anita Hill explicitly and implicitly married a visibly mentally ill woman. I I don't know how else to put that. Uh, Rachel, we can talk about the legality of saying that on the air. Um, (laughs) I mean, I've got lots of Facebook posts or screenshots of Ginny Thomas Facebook posts that I would love to introduce into Discovery if you do get sued. So just keep that in in mind. Yeah, no, I'm I'm ready uh, to defend that defamation claim with uh, the truth is an absolute defense angle. (laughs) All right, so... I think we should move on. Amy Coney Barrett gave a speech that she said was intended to make the case that the court is not partisan and that the justices are not, quote, partisan hacks. She gave the speech at the University of Louisville's McConnell Center, named after Mitch McConnell, and was, in fact, introduced by Mitch McConnell, who described her as a judge from middle America who does not legislate from the bench. Now, I don't think it needs to be explained how insane it is to give a speech about the apolitical nature of the court while standing hand in hand with the person who is without question the one person alive most responsible for politicizing the court. It's on its face so hypocritical that I don't think it's worth delving into too much. The only thing I want to say about it is like, how fucking stupid does she think that we are? Like, how much contempt does she have for us that she can stand hand in hand with McConnell while saying this shit. Genuinely remarkable. It means that either they are so thoroughly drunk on their own Kool-Aid that they can't see how this would be perceived or that they just think that you're a blithering idiot. And I don't see a third option there. It's it's one of those two. 
I think those have to be the two possibilities and it can't be both. And I am curious what you think about this because I I have been debating it myself ever since she gave this wildly (laughs) ill-advised speech, which we can get into the BR aspect of all of this later. But, you know, Amy Coney Barrett was like hatched in a Federalist Society lab, right? Mm -hmm. Like very early on, she was identified as a future conservative legal luminary. She was groomed. She was trained. She was taught how to minimize her paper trail. She was helped up the rungs of the conservative legal establishment to her clerkship, to her professorship. I don't know if she is a totally cynical hack who thinks that we're all morons or wants to troll us, or if she is a true believer and really thinks that despite Mitch McConnell's presence on stage, despite her appearance at the McConnell Center, despite everything she's done so far on the bench, that she is just a totally apolitical, nonpartisan god who is uh, just translating the holy writ for us poor peons to learn. And I think we have too few data points so far. But I think it's a real possibility that she does not understand how bad it looks for her to do that. And that if she gives enough of these speeches, we'll all be persuaded uh, to come over to her side. Yeah, I think it's the best bet. And I think, you know, we're a very cynical podcast, but I think it's easy to forget how blind ideology can make you to something that is very obvious to someone else. And I think that she believes herself to be separate from the political process, but I would not rule out that she just thinks, who gives a shit, you know? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it doesn't matter. So she can do whatever she wants. Now, notably, there is no publicly available video or uh, transcript of Amy Coney Barrett's remarks. That's intentional, and it is a bit of a trend here, despite the fact that they are seemingly running a public-facing media campaign of sorts. Several of the justices seem to have gone out of their way to ensure that no real records of their remarks will exist, although we track them down anyway. This is part of a tradition, especially in the modern era of secrecy surrounding the justices' public statements. Probably the most famous incident on this issue was, I think it was either 2003 or 2004, a couple of reporters recorded remarks by Antonin Scalia, who had requested that no one record it, and the recordings were seized and deleted by U.S. Marshals, leading eventually to a public apology from Scalia. So this is, you know, not new, but certainly notable and really speaks to just how happy the justices are to sort of shroud themselves in the secrecy that is kind of generally bestowed upon the court. And also they hate the media, right? Like, let's not lose sight of that. And we, we can get into this later. But I mean, each of these speeches, Thomas, Alito and Barrett, just takes direct aim at the free press Mm -hmm. and accuses the press of manipulating Supreme Court decisions and quotes from oral arguments and outcomes and sort of warping it all to create a picture of maximum chaos and maximum partisanship. And I think at least for Barrett, implicit in that criticism is, hey, you don't see, you know, any press recording this. You don't see any cameras live streaming it. That kind of backs up her claim that, yeah, I'm so terrified of what the press is doing to the image of the Supreme Court. I'm not even going to let these people record or broadcast my speech, which doesn't make sense if you think about it for like 10 seconds, because of course, if it had been live streamed, we would have gotten full quotes and Mm -hmm. like the full speech and we wouldn't be relying on three reporters, little scribbles 
bold notes, which only highlight the most controversial parts. But I did think that this was Barrett standing up and saying, screw you to the media. Like, you're not going to hear this. This is for real America. And I don't trust you to accurately convey my words. And so you're just going to have to deal with the little shards and sound bites that managed to make it out of this sealed auditorium. So... Onto the substance of the speech. And by the way, we did end up pulling a bit of a transcript of the speech. So uh, we may know more about it than the average person. Amy frames the entire speech with a sort of inherently ridiculous straw man argument. Right. She says, quote, when critics say that the Supreme Court is partisan, they're making two claims. First, that the justices are fervent supporters of a particular political party. And second, that they render decisions in cases with unreflective bias stemming from allegiance to that party, unquote. So these are transparently fake claims that no real person makes and are like intentionally designed to be so stupid that she can just handily dismantle them over the course of a speech and everyone will applaud. The actual argument that I think she doesn't meaningfully address is that judicial philosophies map very closely onto political ideologies. So her entire speech is framed around this premise that judicial philosophies are not political parties, which she says verbatim which is true in like the narrowest sense. But when two political parties ascribe to opposing judicial philosophies, it's just a distinction without a difference. And, you know, the obvious retort is if it's not partisan, if the court's not partisan at all, if there are no partisan implications, why is Mitch McConnell going to extraordinary lengths to prevent the other party from choosing judges? It's just not a believable point. And it feels to me like if they want to keep this charade up, they're going to need some better talking points here. They, they, they're going to need something that isn't just immediately refuted by the actions of both the justices and the party. So I guess I just want to push back a little. I agree that her framing is a total straw man for the most part. But I also think, so let's see, she said, uh, first, justices are fervent supporters of a party and they render decisions with unreflective bias stemming from allegiance to that party. That is almost entirely a straw man, except for the existence of Sam Alito. And I think (laughs) that does accurately describe Sam Alito's jurisprudence and judicial philosophy. And I don't think that's true of the others. I don't think it's true of Clarence Thomas. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's true of John Roberts. It's probably not true of Kavanaugh or Barrett either. But I think it's absolutely what Alito is up to. I mean, he has, you know, to give an example... Alito never, ever, ever voted with the four liberals when there were still four liberals in a five to four decision, something that all of the other conservatives did, because there were at least a few issues where the other conservatives deviated from the party line, but never Alito, never. And it will never happen because all of his votes seem to be designed to align perfectly with the latest draft of the Republican Party platform. Yeah. So, yes, Brett Kavanaugh has an insanely partisan background. To some degree, so does John Roberts. And I think both of them are partisan, but in the slightly subtler way that you were describing, Mm -hmm. in a way that Barrett doesn't deign to address, Alito is just a Republican doing what he thinks Republicans want. And so while I do think that most of this speech is ridiculous because she has constructed a straw man, we have to acknowledge the fact uh, that Sam Alito is that straw man. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think that's fair. He's sort of, a psychological outlier. I mean, Clarence Thomas is a deeply ideological man, but his ideology doesn't map perfectly onto the Republican talking points. But I think that Alito is a Fox News justice. Right. The last thing I want to say about her speech is that there's a Q&A portion and a student asked about the shadow docket 
and the SB8 case. And she said it would be inappropriate to comment on specific cases or emergency decisions generally. So on to Justice Alito, who gave a speech at Notre Dame where he commented on specific cases and emergency decisions generally. (laughs) His speech was geared towards defending the court from accusations that it is abusing the shadow docket. He said very specifically that the court is not a dangerous cabal that resorts to sneaky and improper methods to get its ways. So, yeah, you know, you know, things are going great when you are proactively describing yourself as not being in a cabal. (laughs) And I think this is just one of those rare situations where Alito really nails it, just not the way he intended, because I think dangerous cabal would probably be a fair description of the six conservative justices. Mm -hmm. So he understands what he's arguing against, which is people understanding what the court is right now and what it means. He just he's a little too explicit in the language that he's using to try to ward off those uh, accusations. Yeah, it's um. It's actually fascinating that he shows a lot of self-awareness in that I think that he thinks that he's presenting a hyperbolic criticism of the court when he says stuff like that. But I hear it and I'm like, yeah, spot on. You know, that, yeah, that's right. Exactly. Exactly. I, I just nodded along to that portion of the speech. <laughs> yeah. A couple other provisions we should probably flag is that he cited and quoted from an article by Adam Serwer of The Atlantic, where Adam Serwer said that by allowing the Texas abortion ban to take effect, that the Supreme Court had functionally overturned Roe v. Wade. Justice Alito said that that uh, declaration by Adam Serwer was false and inflammatory. And the suggestion that we should have held oral argument is ridiculous. And then he complained that the media and political talk about the shadow docket is not serious criticism. But feeds unprecedented efforts to intimidate the courts. And I think this is the real nub of his speech, is this idea that any kind of criticism of the Supreme Court and of its shadow docket is illegitimate and inherently political intimidation tactics that all right-thinking good people and lawyers need to step away from because if they aren't declaring total fealty to, to the court and everything it does, then they are actually enemies of the court and thus enemies of America and the Constitution and should just go light themselves on fire. Yeah, yeah there, there's a real strong, almost explicit at times, uh, implication that all of the opponents of the court and the shadow docket activity are acting in bad faith, right. that there is no legitimate argument being put forward here, which I think you mentioned when we discussed this earlier, ignores Kagan's dissent in the SB8 case, <laughs> which explicitly criticizes the court on this very front. So just casting aside his colleague on the court and pretending that this is like the creation of media and and liberal politicians, right? These sort of traditional conservative boogeymen. Right. When Kagan's entire dissent, actually, in the Texas abortion case was all shitting on the shadow docket mm-hmm. and shitting on the conservative justices for exploiting it. But if he had acknowledged that, it would have sort of ruined his thesis right. because his thesis was this is just Democrats, whether they're Democrats on the Hill or Democrats on CNN or Democrats in the pages of Slate, trying to delegitimize and intimidate the court when, again, in reality, there are justices and judges on the lower courts who are concerned about this stuff as well. But it doesn't work in Alito's master narrative, so it doesn't work, period. Right. And implicit in his statements is these morons don't understand how courts work and how the law works. And like, this is how procedural matters 
are handled. And, and this is all very standard and normal. And if you were educated on such topics, you would understand that, too. So not only is that point undermined by Kagan's dissent, but there were actually a couple of like fairly obvious and elementary factual mistakes he made that people called out online that, you know, knowledgeable lawyers called out online. And, and I think the funniest one was that he defended the SBA decision coming out at 1158 p.m. by saying that it made sense because the law was going into effect at midnight. And various people pointed out, yeah, that would make sense, except the law went into effect midnight the night before. Nice. <laughs> I mean, incredible and a great sign that no one is editing your speech. <laughs> <laughs> no, absolutely not. I, d- I doubt anyone except maybe one law clerk read this speech before he delivered it, which is another problem that we keep inching up toward, which is the justices do not have PR people. <laughs> um, they don't have any kind of real like public relations advice from professionals. All they have are their clerks who are total yes men, rubber stamps, who are like, whatever you want, justice, and tell them, sure, go out there and deliver this like totally deranged speech. It can only do good for the court and the country. One other factual error I just want to highlight, and then I want to say something really petty. The factual error is he said that emergency orders, so like shadow docket decisions, are not precedential and are not binding on the lower courts. And that is just an insane fucking thing to say. Because they have said over and over again in those very opinions that they are binding on the lower courts. And when the lower courts do not interpret them correctly, I'm doing air quotes Mm -hmm. because they're so cryptic and brief that it's impossible to know what most of them mean. They will issue these decisions chastising the lower court judges and saying, how dare you, Ninth Circuit judges, not understand the new precedent we created in these scattershot orders that don't even have a majority opinion, that are just a bunch of different justices sort of listing their particular grievances. How dare you not piece all of that together into a coherent precedent that you're obligated to follow? We're going to smack you and set you right. Right. I mean, it's just obviously untrue. And if it was true, it would lead to like nonsensical places, right? It would mean that, you know, the eviction moratorium was struck down on the shadow docket. And it would mean that Biden could just issue another one. Right. And then lower courts would be without any precedent about whether or not to uphold it. And it could make its way up to the Supreme Court. They could strike it down again. And Biden could just issue one after that. So not only is it at odds with how the court has like plainly operated, it just doesn't make any fucking sense. Why would it operate like that? It's bizarre. Of course, the Supreme Court does not act like a real court anymore, so it shouldn't (laughs) be that surprising. Um, But I just want to say one thing about your comments with regard to Alito's claim that basically all of this criticism is from morons who don't understand the intricate procedure here. And if they were only brain geniuses like me, they would grasp all of the confusing procedural stuff going on and realize why we're always right. Uh, That is the classic move for conservative lawyers and defenders of conservative judges and conservative decisions, right? You see this on Twitter all the time. There are many members of the Federalist Society who spend hours and hours a day on Twitter, doing nothing but just policing other people's tweets about the court and the Supreme Court. I mean, these people must have the most miserable lives because it it seems that all they do is sit on Twitter and jump into your mentions the second you say anything mildly critical about the Supreme Court or, or conservative justices and accuse you of just fundamentally misunderstanding and then drag you into this 
endless debate, this sort of like Escher-esque <laughs> series of staircases that lead nowhere. You can never extract yourself completely. You just have to ignore it because they will debate you endlessly on all of these fine points of law that even if you understand, they'll just change the subject. Right. And I, I just want to say this is a conspiracy theory. I don't have anything real to back this up, but I am convinced that some of these people, and I'm not going to name names because I don't want them to jump into my menchies because they ruin my quality of life. But <laughs> I think that that is their goal is to drag, for instance, left-leaning law professors into these incredibly unpleasant hour-long Twitter feuds. Even though the law professors aren't going to back down, they're going to think twice about tweeting something next time because mm -hmm. they don't want this goddamn asshole at some horrible school in the middle of fuck nowhere just dragging them into the muck of a Twitter debate forever. And when I say horrible school, I mean horrible like it's politics are bad, you know, yeah. like Notre Dame. Not a state school. We love our state schools, folks. But I think that this is a real tactic that is used and that Alito is deploying to try to just confuse people and scare them out of leveling any criticism because they'll be accused of being dum-dums. Right. And I cannot tell you, just to put a pin in this, how many of these professors are in my DMs saying, what the fuck is wrong with this person? Yeah. Why won't they argue in good faith? And I, I cannot drill into their skulls the reality that all of these people who they have to go to the stupid faculty meetings with and have to play nice with that you know like they are operating in bad right. faith it is very difficult for most law professors to wrap their heads around yeah. that and it's a tragedy so taking a step back alito's public comments especially in the last couple of years have been sort of quintessentially reactionary in that he depicts himself and the conservatives on the court as sort of besieged this is a key component of reactionary psychology, where even though they are sort of definitionally holding sociopolitical power, they perceive themselves as embattled. And it was very apparent with Trump, right, who was literally the most powerful person in the world, but just sort of constantly portraying himself as the victim, presidential harassment and so forth. Right. Right. And now you have Alito, who is part of a powerful supermajority on the court and has been on the winning side of the court's jurisprudence on all but a small handful of issues during his tenure, whining that the media is unfairly criticizing them. And Mark, you had mentioned when we were prepping the way that conservatives view the last 50 years of jurisprudence and how they view it as being a series of liberal victories, even though it is very obviously, I think if you break it down, a series of conservative victories. Yeah, absolutely. I think that even in the post-Warren Court era, a lot of conservatives felt like the Supreme Court was really liberal and delivering more wins to liberals than to conservatives. Even through the 70s and 80s until very recently, you heard a common gripe on the right that the Supreme Court was, was liberal, that even when Anthony Kennedy was the swing vote, mm -hmm. that it was still doing more for Democrats and for progressives. And I think that to some degree, conservatives were jealous because they felt like Democrats and, and liberals had captured this unelected institution and that it was doing all of this work for them unfairly. And I, I sense now some resentment because now conservatives have finally really captured the Supreme Court. I mean, I understand that people like Josh Blackman say it's still not enough, it's never enough, but the fact is that the conservatives own this Supreme Court. And yet, for the first time in a long time, we're seeing real pushback against the court's legitimacy from people with power. I mean, the Democrats in Congress, as spineless and ineffectual as they may often be, they are holding hearings 
about the Supreme Court in very critical ways. They are introducing and passing legislation that has real court reform in it. The Democrats' latest voting rights bill that passed the House of Representatives has court reform provisions that are powerful and meaningful. And, you know, the entire Democratic Party is inching away from its years-long obsession with treating the court like a beautiful, totally legitimate institution, like a church, basically, and starting to question its authority. And you're seeing that come out in public opinion polls, and you're seeing that on the Hill, you're seeing that in the media. And I think conservatives are resentful that they finally captured the court, and now at this moment, the country no longer swears total fealty to it. That now, with this ultra-conservative majority, more and more Americans, and especially on the left, and more politicians are saying, wait a minute, maybe this court is a problem. Maybe we need to rein it in. And they're saying, well, you weren't passing court reform bills and holding hearings about this stuff when the court was super liberal. Now we're conservative. We have our bite at the apple. We have our day at the fair and you're questioning our right to be here. And I think that really, really rankles them in a way that comes through in all of these speeches. Yeah. And I wonder whether from a pure messaging perspective, it's hard to think that they wouldn't have been better served by letting Merrick Garland in. (laughs) Liberals wouldn't really have this sort of obvious foul play argument that they have now. And I think in the conservatives' comments about this, you can feel a sort of insecurity about their position that emanates, I think, from the Merrick Garland debacle, because there is no real good defense of it. All of the defenses of it are incoherent. And even like the sort of foremost partisan hacks Well, at the end of the day, say, well, yeah, it's better to have a conservative justice than a liberal justice. So we went all in there. I feel like the justices can feel that. You can feel their frustration, I think, in a lot of these speeches. And Alito's especially because he he lets it all hang out there. I don't know if I agree with that. I don't know if they acknowledge these justices in particular, Mm -hmm. Barrett, Alito, Tom. I don't know if they really acknowledge the, the Garland blockade as a reason to question the court's legitimacy. I suspect that they hold this view that you see among a lot of their allies whose job seems to be to sort of promote their views in the public sphere, people like Ed Whalen, Zillow Ed Whalen, mm-hmm. they think that the Democratic Party is corrupt, that the Democratic Party is ultra-powerful and has been unfairly capturing the courts by capturing the legal profession, by creating a baseline of law that is more liberal than it should be, and that the Garland blockade was the least that Republicans could do to push back on decades of an unfair advantage that Democrats had received by capturing the legal profession and ensuring that even when Republican presidents were in office, a lot of their judicial nominees would end up being centrist or even left-leaning, which definitely ended under Trump, but was a thing. Mm -hmm. There are decent George H.W. Bush appointees and George W. Bush appointees. And so I don't know that Alito looks at the Garland thing and says, wrong was done here. I think he's like, this is the start of pushing back. Oh, I don't think he thinks wrong was done. Like, like, and by the way, this is wild speculation on my part. They've never commented on this uh, shit, obviously. But I think that it's not that they believe that it was uh, wrong. I believe that they have no solid defense of that and that you can see it coming through in their defensiveness here. And again, this is pretty speculative. But what I've always seen from the right on the Merrick Garland debacle was You started this with Bork. Yeah. You decided that confirmation hearings were a political battle. And this is what you get, you motherfuckers. Mm. And I believe that that is what 
someone like Alito probably thinks at the end of the day. And that's just a guess. That's as good a theory as any. I just want to say one more thing about this, though, which is when Merrick Garland was being blockaded, Alito actually did not think that it was necessary to criticize Republicans for politicizing the court. He did not think that there was any kind of danger facing the court's legitimacy or any kind of intimidation. But now when Democrats are just kind of like, you know, waving their hands and complaining about the shadow docket, Sam Alito thinks that the court is under existential threats. Right, right. So we've gone over speeches from the three conservatives, and all of them, I think, have one thing in common, which is that they view the integrity of the court as an image problem rather than a problem with the court itself. Right. They complain about the media and politicians and people on Twitter who, in their mind, undermine the institution. And what they can't accept is that the media coverage and political reaction is simply the results of media and politicians accurately describing the state of the court. It's just getting mad at a doctor about a diagnosis. And that is, to me, the common thread in all of this, where they believe that if the media criticism went away, everything would be great. There is no underlying problem. Yes, for sure. Which, again, is reflective of their lack of a PR arm, (laughs) because they not only think that the media is the problem, but they think they can fix the problem, right? right? They seem to be convinced that if they just go out there and give some speeches standing next to Mitch McConnell or at Notre Dame saying, hey, the media, they're all a bunch of liars. The Democrats are the same rat bastards they've always been. Just trust us. Just believe us that they will somehow make things better, which is perhaps the piece of this that I find most fascinating because it sort of shows like, justices can act like politicians, right? They can go out there and enshrine their policy views into law. That's exactly what these justices are doing. But they also lack a lot of the benefits that that come with being a politician. Like, for instance, a support staff that pays attention to polling and what works image-wise and what doesn't and when you should speak and when you should keep your mouth shut. They don't have any of that. They only have their rubber stamp clerks. And so when they do try to act like politicians in the public sphere, they go out there and give these speeches, it is almost always a horrible miscalculation that ends up doing the exact opposite thing that they thought they were doing and entrenching the public view that they are partisans in robes because that's all that they sound like when they go out there and give speeches like these. Yeah, it's a classic lawyer brain thing to think like, all right, everyone thinks that we're a bunch of partisan hacks, so I will go out there and I will make an argument that we're not. And that'll change the discourse. And they have to believe you because you're a justice. When a justice says it, it has to be true. So before we start to wrap up, I think it's worth noting a speech given by Justice Breyer, (laughs) who was promoting his book, sort of defending the idea that the court does not need reform. Now, he was not really part of this same media blitz because he was, at the end of the day, selling his book. But it was just sort of notable to me that he was out there inadvertently or otherwise sort of backing up the conservatives rhetorically. Right. I mean, the rotten maraschino cherry on top of Breyer's shit cake is that Sam Alito quoted from his book (laughs) in that Notre Dame speech. Justice Breyer's new book explains exactly how the justices should respond to charges like this. He wrote the following, and I quote, just do the job. Do not seek or expect popularity. Just say, hey, look, even, you know, my good pal Steve Breyer agrees with me about this. And I don't think that they coordinated at 
all no. here. I, I think that Breyer is, uh, he's very much an absent-minded professor type. He probably still doesn't understand why the timing here was so bad. But yes, his media blitz happened to coincide with their media blitz. And I think he gave conservatives and Republicans a lot of cover to say, well, look, even Breyer is saying this. He's so wise. Liberals should stop complaining and listen to him. I was really kind of disgusted by a lot of his media appearances, I have to admit, specifically on the Stephen Colbert show, where he just went out there and soaked up the applause. And this audience just clapped at everything he said, like seals. I'm curious. You say that, you know, people need to work to improve the institutions, the Supreme Court being one of the institutions. What would you change to improve it? In the court? Your court, the Supreme Court. Well, of course, I'm tempted to say, you know, which is frivolous remark, but I'm tempted to say people could agree with me all the time. <laughs> but that, that is a frivolous remark. Mm-hmm. And, and, and he loved it. And you could tell he was adoring it. Mm-hmm. And I think that's one of the reasons he hasn't retired yet is that he knows on some level that when he steps down, he, he's not going to get another invite back onto late night, right. probably. And he's getting it all in while he still can. And to some degree, that alarms and disgusts me more than what these true believers and partisan hacks are doing. It's more cynical somehow. It's more depraved. I mean, God, in a way, he may be the most PR savvy of all of them because he's trying to sell books and benefit his own brand. And God knows he's doing it. It's just humiliating. And for those of us who are on the left, incredibly disappointing because we only have three and one of them sucks. So now we basically just have two. Right, right. So... You know, taking a step back and looking at these three speeches, Alito, Coney Barrett and Thomas, and trying to evaluate what have they done here? You know, have they made some terrible mistake or is this just sort of like an embarrassing faux pas? I think the immediate impulse is to say, wow, you know, they're they're making themselves look like idiots. You know, like you mentioned, they're they're not media savvy enough for this. They're just sort of drawing attention to the problem rather than diffusing it. But the cynic in me thinks about the early portions of Trump's 2016 campaign, where everyone in the media, everyone on the left and liberals all were like, wow, this guy is just just a fucking moron. And everything being written about him is negative. He's an idiot. He's making a fool of himself. That wasn't wrong in and of itself. It was just sort of an incomplete picture of what was happening. What was happening was that Trump, in part simply because he was drawing ire from the left, was energizing the right-wing base and the right-wing media ecosystem. And I sort of wonder whether that is happening on a lesser scale here, where liberals and the left mock the justices for sort of futilely attempting to convince people they aren't partisan. But what the justices are doing, unknowingly almost certainly, is signaling to conservatives that there's a cause here to rally around, right? The legitimacy of the court is, is the cause. And that this gives a sort of warning shot that conservative media will hear. Though I don't think conservative media needed to hear it, right? And that's the issue here is they're signaling clearly to their allies, to people like Zillow, Ed Whalen, go out there and really hammer home that we are not partisans in robes, that we are super duper legitimate and that everything we do comes straight from a seance with James Madison Mm -hmm. and that anyone who says otherwise is just a bad faith partisan hack, unlike us. So I guess, yes, 
it may be somewhat helpful in bringing that to conservative media's attention as a priority. They're going to start stressing that above, say, all of the wins that conservatives are racking up thanks to the Supreme Court. You might see a little bit of a recalibration in tone and substance from conservative media because for a little while there, it did seem like it was just all a victory lap, right? Look at all the amazing things that this sixth conservative vote has brought us. Maybe they'll cool it down a bit. But at the end of the day, they're life tenure justices. They are probably not facing a really serious threat of court expansion, though I, you know, I would be happy to be proved wrong there. Mm-hmm. They are secure in their jobs and they have a whole lot of wiggle room to screw up. And so if what they were trying to do was maybe float a trial balloon or signal to the conservative media or shore up their legitimacy, the cynic in me asks, who cares? Because it's going to blow over. It was a media cycle. It's basically over now. The court's already started its term. It's ready to do damage. The knives are out. And even if all six conservative justices like did a full-on reenactment of showgirls at a community theater, at the end of the day, they would still go back to their court with their life tenure and do whatever the hell they wanted. And so maybe the joke is on us for even caring about what they say. I think that's probably correct. I mean, it's interesting to think about what the impact of these speeches are. The key point is whether there's anything to be gleaned about where the justices are psychologically, right? Mm -hmm. Something that might signal what the next couple of years are going to look like. Mm -hmm. And I think there's basically two possibilities. One, they are getting entrenched in their positions. They're lining up their rhetoric to defend themselves. And two, they're nervous about public opinion. And these speeches are sort of a signal that they're concerned and they're getting a little bit defensive because they're uncertain about what the next couple of years of public blowback might actually look like. They're clearly absorbing media critiques to some degree. Amy Coney Barrett in her speech was like, I don't consume any media uh, about the court, but then cited media about the court. (laughs) I think that they are conscious of these critiques and that they are a little bit anxious. I think that's what this is a manifestation of, most likely. Maybe they're looking out and seeing more and more members of Congress sign on to the court expansion bill and seeing the conversation turn rather sharply in a lot of legal circles and academic circles. And I do think it's noteworthy to see like very prominent law professors go out there and either support court expansion or sharply criticize the court. They see that the gloves are coming off and they're worried what that will lead to and hope to prevent it from leading to anything. Yeah. If Sam Alito thinks that Democrats are going to pack the court, then he is wildly misapprehending the state of the Democrats. (laughs) I've said it before on the podcast and in other formats. Reactionary institutions are bad. I'm not concerned about undermining the legitimacy of the court because I do not care about the legitimacy of reactionary institutions. I think that regardless of whatever the justices are doing here or whatever they think they're doing here, they are without question wading into the political muck and they will not be able to wash it off no matter what they do. And to me, that's a net good, even if that good manifests, you know, years down the line because it will allow the public to see the justices for the filthy little political creatures that they are. Times have changed so much since we went to law school, right? And when I talk to law students today, they 
get it. Yes. They really get it in a kind of profound and surprising way. It delights me. They understand that the court is incredibly partisan. They understand that it is a reactionary institution that needs to be taken down several pegs at least. And they're mad about it. And that just was not a dynamic present in law schools, at least when I went to law school, not too long ago. And so I do wonder if maybe somehow through the clerk grapevine or something, the justices are aware of that dynamic and they know they've got to think strategically over the span of decades. And maybe that is alarming them. And maybe they see that a legal profession dominated by people like us and like the future crop of lawyers actually does pose a threat to their power. And Perhaps at bottom, that's what's frightening them. Not anything that's happening right now, but what could happen down the road if we continue in this direction. Yeah, we don't usually end on a hopeful note in our podcast, but I think there is real hope there. And I think that the younger generation, not just students, but younger attorneys really have a completely different perspective of the court and the law. Yeah. And that is why I remain cautiously, as cautiously as possible, but cautiously optimistic about the future of the court. Not because I think we will sort of, you know, win through uh, through the political process in 2022 or whatever, but because I don't think the right understands how badly they are currently losing at like the law school level. Right. And that has to matter, I think. Yeah. Look at that. Optimism on the 5-4 podcast. Has it ever happened before? Not once. <laughs> Mark, appreciate you coming on, man. Great conversation. Where can people find you? You can find me on Slate.com or on Twitter at MJS underscore DC. You can follow us on Twitter at 5-4-POD. Next week, Younger v. Harris, a case about civil rights procedures from the 70s. Uh, Our good friend Alec Harakonsanis is coming back to talk about it. We'll see you then. 5 to 4 is presented by Prologue Projects. This episode was produced by Rachel Ward with editorial support from Leon Nafok and Andrew Parsons. Our production manager is Persia Verlin. Our artwork is by Teddy Blanks at Chips NY, and our theme song is by Spatial Relations. <laughs>